Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer and make sure we're in fellowship, and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we can be here tonight to be encouraged by your word, to take the time to study your word, reflect upon the eternal principles that are found here, and to understand these doctrines and to see how they apply to our lives. Father, we pray that as we study these things tonight, that God the Holy Spirit would uh, make them real to us, that God the Holy Spirit would illuminate our thinking, that we can see how these principles need to be applied to our own lives and how we can thus continue to grow and advance in our own spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let's open our Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. And we begin one of the, well, I think one of the most interesting, dramatic sections of the Scripture begins with the prophet Elijah at the end of 1 Kings and then progresses to the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings. Elisha and Elijah form a period of time in Israel's history that is the second most active time of miracles in, uh, in, in the Scripture. You have the period of miracles during the time of the Exodus then there's this um, uh, period, uh, explosion of miracles during the time of Elijah and Elisha. And then the third instance is during the time when the Lord Jesus Christ is carrying out his uh, earthly ministry in, um, in the period in the first century. So this is a dramatic time. It's a significant time in Israel's history. And it is also, as we can see, a focal point within the narrative of First and Second Kings, as I pointed out when we got started, First Kings and Second Kings should be viewed as one entity. So we'll go back and review some of our uh, opening charts. That there are three basic divisions within the structure of kings, and we ought to think of it as one book. It was only divided into two because you couldn't get the whole thing on one scroll. So it's it's one book. 1 Kings 1 to 11 focuses on the United Kingdom, David. We begin with David in uh, his dotage in old age and about to die, uh, the transition, the rebellion that occurs there, uh, and then the solidification of Solomon upon the throne. Solomon's uh, the third of the three kings over the United Kingdom. Upon his death at the end of chapter 11, the kingdom will be divided between his son, uh, Rehoboam, when the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, uh, are led in revolt by Jeroboam. 
So that begins the divided kingdom period from 1 Kings 12 to 2 Kings 17. But right in the heart of this section, you have the Elijah-Elisha material from 1629 and up to the death of Elisha in chapter 13 of 2 Kings, uh, a little bit more than 19 chapters are covered in this period. And it's a, a little over 47 chapters that we're looking at here. Um, and 19 of those focus on Elijah and Elisha. So uh, we have about uh, 11 chapters in 1 Kings, uh, 17 chapters in Second uh, Kings, a little bit of chapter 11 to, to begin the transition, so it's a little bit more than, than uh, 18 into 19 chapters out of uh, 47 chapters total. So uh, this shows you that the most material, the largest focus in Kings is on Elijah and Elisha. That's the centerpiece of what the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate. One of the things that you should pay attention to whenever you're reading Scripture is proportion. That's one of the rules of Bible study, one of the things you look for in observation. There are three basic things that everyone needs to do whenever they're reading through their Bible. The first is observation. Have a little notebook just to write things down. The second is interpretation. And the third is application. Observation means what does it say? And this is where you just jot down people's names, especially when you read through the Old Testament. Jot down names, places, events. Look in the maps in the back of your Bible. Try to figure out where things are happening and why they might be happening there. Use a concordance to uh, look these places up and see where else they're mentioned, where else they're significant in the Scripture. Uh, That's all part of observation. Grammar, syntax, word studies, all these come under the category of observation, just answering the question, what does the Bible say? And a lot of times the reason people misunderstand and misinterpret Scripture is just because they don't do their homework at that first stage of what does the Bible say. And uh, as I teach, when I teach Bible study methods, I always emphasize the importance of just observation because people want to jump to application way too fast. They jump in there and say, what does it mean to me? And we don't need to be concerned too much about what it means to us until we figure out just exactly what is being said to begin with. And one of the things that you look for are different, uh, you know, proportionality, what's being emphasized, what's being de-emphasized, what's being uh, contrasted or compared, uh, things of that nature, and if anything's being repeated. And so when you look at a period of time that, like we have in uh, 1 Kings that begins with uh, the death of David in about uh, nine, uh, 980, roughly, uh, 970 B.C., somewhere in that period, uh, about 970 when, uh, uh, when things begin, 971. And then we look at when things end. We see that a large chunk of this is right in the middle with the divided kingdom where it covers 209 years, but... Actually, the, the most that's said in that section of Scripture has to do with the, the, the ministry of Elijah and uh, Elisha. So we're covering a period of uh, about 400 years from 971 to 586, 
and the lion's share of that's going to focus on Elijah and Elisha. So why is that uh, so important? Why is that so significant? Why does the Holy Spirit spend so much time there? And as we've looked at it in the past, the first section deals with uh, Solomon's reign, and we've looked at that, the key person for the first 11 chapters. And then when we get into the second section, we're dealing with the division of the kingdom in chapters 12 through 14, and then we have the reigns of various kings in chapters 15 and 16 up to 1628, which is where we stopped the last time. And then, but, but that really serves as a transition. When you think about what's stated and what happens between 12 and 16, it, it all focuses our attention on what is, what's going to happen once Elijah comes on the scene. We're moving fast. We're driving down the highway and everything's going by very, fairly quickly. And then all of a sudden we get to Elijah and the brakes come on. And we slow down and we start looking at one person and individual events. And so that ought to capture our attention as to what's going on here. Why is this important? And why is God the Holy Spirit taking so much time with Elijah and Elisha? And so we'll look at the, uh, it's primarily focusing on the reign of Ahab up through uh, chapter 22. And then we'll see this alliance between the north with Ahab and Jehoshaphat, who's the king in Judah. Uh, uh, Ahab dies in chapter 22, and he is succeeded by on the throne by his son Ahaziah. Then we get into 2 Kings. The first two chapters of 2 Kings are still Elijah, but starting in chapter 3, the mantle is passed from Elijah to Elisha, and Elisha begins to... Uh, begins to be the focus as uh, Elijah is taken uh, taken to heaven. And again, there are several kings that are mentioned in this period. Most of them are mentioned after chapter 13. There are several that are mentioned in there before chapter 13, but the majority come after that. And then from 13 to 17, things rapidly deteriorate. Just think about that. You have chapter 13, halfway through, Elisha dies. So you have roughly um, three chapters, 14, 15, or four chapters, 14, 15, 16, and 17, that deal with the fall of Israel. So things speed up again as you move through the various uh, kings from the death of Elisha to the fall of the northern kingdom in the Assyrian invasion. And then the last part uh, from chapter 18 through chapter 25 Again, seven chapters, much less material than what you have in the Elijah-Elisha section. Uh, you have about seven or eight chapters that deal with uh, the uh, single kingdom, the united kingdom uh, from Hezekiah to the fall of Judah in 586. Now, in the section that we're going to be looking at with Elijah and Elisha, and I want to take some time just to do that sort of flyover survey so we get an idea of what we're what we're about to get into, we're going to be looking at uh, nine kings, although only one of them, Ahaziah in the southern kingdom, is only on the throne for about a year or less. Uh, He's, um, uh, again, an evil king, and he is uh, removed under divine discipline by his mother, Athaliah. 
And Athaliah is just one of the most evil women in all of history, and she tries to wipe out the Davidic seed. She is a the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, and only one is left that is hidden in the temple by the high priest, and that is a Joash who will be a good king. But we're going to see that there's some confusion in here as well. So in the northern kingdom, we'll look at Ahab, Ahaziah, his son, then uh, Joram, also called Jehoram. And then that's the end of the Amrid dynasty. That's the end of Ahab's line. And Jehu is brought in by God to bring discipline on the house of Ahab. And then the southern kingdom will look at Jehoshaphat. And notice Jehoshaphat is succeeded by his son Jehoram, also known as Joram. Joram is just a contracted form of Jehoram. So you have Joram or Jehoram in the north and Jehoram or Joram in the south. And if you look at their dates, they overlap. Confusing. So we, we just have to figure out how to keep that straight and which one I'm going to call what so we don't get too confused when we get there. And uh, that gives us an overview. But it's during the reigns of these kings that Elijah and Elisha are calling the northern kingdom to change their ways and announcing the, the judgment of God. And so that is the, that's the focal point is really on the message of God on Elijah and Elisha and what they are saying to the northern kingdom. So once again, just in terms of an overview, as we get into this section, we'll see that 1 Kings chapters 17 to 20, 1 Kings 17 to 20, will focus on Elijah's conflict with Ahab. That's at the human level. But what's going on behind the scenes is really the conflict between truth and error, between good and evil, between Yahweh and the uh, incursion of one of the most evil religious systems in all of history, the Baal worship, the, the fertility worship, or just, it's frankly, it's just the uh, ancient world's version of the health and wealth prosperity gospel, and 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 today we have it just in a little bit more sanitized, uh, more sanitized form. But that's the focal point. What we'll see here is how divine viewpoint challenges human viewpoint, and Elijah represents divine viewpoints. Fascinating to watch how he challenges human viewpoint in this setting, and the way in which God just uses sarcasm and ridicule, he belittles the priests of Baal and uh, the priests of the Asherah, he belittles the false system, he's sarcastic, he's not politically correct at all, and yet when if, if we as Christians were to be as demeaning toward Islam or Judaism, or New Age mysticism, or secular humanism as Elijah was, oh, we would just be the most horrible people in the world. They'd probably start passing uh, anti-Christian laws uh, before we were done because modern man just has such an inflated view of himself that we have to treat everybody, everybody's opinion as if it is of equal 
uh, of equal value. But the God of the Bible never does that. He didn't do it at any time in the Old Testament. And he and God is very sarcastic. And one of the reasons most people don't pick up on it is because we're so uh, unaware of the characteristics of these Old Testament religious systems of the of the of the religious systems of the of the Egyptians and the, the pantheons of the Babylonians. And if you read through things such as uh, Gen- just Genesis one, there are all sorts of little jabs that are made there uh, against both Babylonian uh, pantheism as well as Egyptian pantheism. And, of course, any form of human viewpoint polytheism is going to fall prey to the same basic kinds of attacks. And so it's very clear that all the way through Genesis, and then you get into Exodus, and you have the, uh, the ten plagues that God brings against Egypt, and each one of those ten plagues targets uh, some activity that is allegedly under the control of one of these Egyptian deities. And what God is showing is that these Egyptian deities are just the figments of man's imagination. They have no power, no ability uh, whatsoever. And God is just uh, walking all over them as if they don't exist because they don't exist. And the lesson we learn from this is that, that uh, and from watching Elijah is that we need to learn the skills in talking and in dialoguing with people to be able to turn uh, the argument that uh, against them, use their arguments uh, against them in ways that are not necessarily, um, uh, we don't want to be uh, nasty, but we want to make sure we point out the fact that their their thinking just doesn't hold water. It cannot uh, handle the realities of life. So we just push them, push them by asking questions uh, to the place where uh, they realize that they can't um, they can't be consistent with their own positions. The trouble is that when you start doing that, uh, you're not going to win a lot of friends unless somebody is seriously interested in learning and their objective. If they're not, then what happens is there will be that reaction that I talked about on Sunday. And if we're witnessing in this world and we're actively engaged in a testimony to the unbelieving world, then you're going to get hostile reactions and reactions that, that may become quite bitter, quite personal, and simply because people who don't want to know the truth react in uh, hateful, spiteful, bitter ways when they, the, 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 their lack of, uh, lack of truth or the inability of their position to hold water is exposed. And when you suddenly hold up the mirror and say, look, the emperor really doesn't have any clothes on, does he? And you're just standing there stark naked in the public square. Uh, people don't like that. And they're going to react, but that we're not doing it to be just to belittle people or to try to win an argument. We're doing it to to ultimately convince people and show people that Jesus Christ uh, is real and that the Bible is true. And it's not a, ultimately a rational argument. We're never going to convince people about the truth of the Bible just by having good, rational arguments because the ultimate problem isn't reason. It's not evidence. 
The ultimate problem, as I pointed out on Sunday, is that people have a preset position against the truth. And when we are dialoguing with some people, though, what we have to learn to do in a proper way, I believe at times, is to expose the problems of unbelief. Jesus did it all the time with the Pharisees, and um, and you see it throughout the Scripture. This is not something that uh, we shouldn't do just because, well, they might not like it or it's not going to win people to the truth. You never know how God is going to use things of that nature how the Holy Spirit will use it down the road. So we'll see a lot of things like that. So Elijah's conflict with Ahab in chapter 17 to 20. Then in 21 to 22, we see the characteristics of evil in Ahab's reign as the focus shifts back to Ahab, Ahab's reign. And we have that interesting scene that occurs uh, in chapter 22 with the battle against the Syrians. Now, chapter 21 gives one characteristic as we see the the real issue here is power. And there are a lot of parallels to what's going on in our country today. It's not about truth. When, when you look at politics, it's not about doing what's right for most politicians. It's not about truth. It's not about applying some sort of external objective standard and really seeking what is good for people. You hear people, uh, politicians, use that platitude all the time that I just want to do what's best for the state of Texas or the state of Illinois or the state of whatever, but that's really not uh, the truth. They just want to say the things that sound, sound good, and once you get away from objective truth, something has to go into the vacuum. It's either going to be emotion or it's going to be uh, money or it's going to be power, or maybe one or two other things. And that's what we see happening here in chapter 21. Um, Ahab wants the uh, vineyard of Naboth, and so he is going to utilize the power of his position in order to confiscate the land. And once again, we'll see some principles there about the importance of private ownership of land and the limitations that should be placed on government because they should not get away with that kind of activity. Chapter 22 deals again with power as Ahab and Jehoshaphat want to go, are going to go fight against the king of Syria. And Ahab is the one who initiates that. And then we see the whole scene in heaven where God calls, looks for some spirit who will go forth as a deceiving spirit in order to deceive Ahab. And then at the end of the battle, Ahab, of course, is killed. Then we come to Second Kings chapter 1, where we see the conclusion of God's punishment on the house, the house of Ahab, in the immediate house of Ahab with the death of his son Ahaziah who again only reigns for one year. Chapter 2, Elijah is taken to heaven and replaced by Elisha. In 2 Kings chapter 3, Jehoram is going to come uh, to the throne in the, this is Joram or Jehoram. He's going to come to the throne in the north. He will put aside the Baal worship, but he's going to stick with the idolatry of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Uh, he is going to get involved in some attacks against Moab. 
So we'll have to take some time to go back and look at what Israel's relationship to Moab was supposed to have been. Remember, Moses took them all the way around uh, Moab because they were cousins. So here Israel is attacking Moab. We'll get into chapter 4. We'll see uh, a lot more on Elisha, various miracles of Elisha, the miracle of the oil, uh, the Shunammite woman raising her son from the dead, the healing of Naaman the Syrian, who demonstrates what his role is fundamentally, is to show the positive volition among the Gentiles uh, in contrast to the negative volition, the apostasy among Israel. And again and again, as you go through the Old Testament, you see that. You see it a few times in the life of Christ. You have the Syrophoenician woman who comes and has faith. You see a Roman centurion who has faith, and Jesus says, you know, he hadn't seen faith like that even among among the Jews. So Gentiles at times have shown more positive volition than the, than the Jews have. Then you have a divine judgment on Samaria in terms of military defeat by the Syrians, but at the last minute God is going to deliver them in chapter 7. It's not the right time for the fifth cycle of discipline. Chapter 8 will again talk about the Shunammite woman and the restoration of her land. And also in that cha- in chapter 8, there's uh, continued insight into the evil consequences of uh, Baalism and the fertility cult in the southern kingdom at this point. When we get into chapters 9 and 10, things come to a resolution. Jehu is called by God to come in and wipe out the house of Ahab. And in that process, he is going to um, cleanse the north uh, of of the Baalism, but he won't go as far. He'll end it, but he won't go as far as to get rid of the idolatry. Uh, Jezebel is finally killed in chapter 9 in fulfillment of the prophecy that Elijah had made earlier. Chapter 10, there's the judgment on the house of Ahab related to Athaliah and her uh, plots and conspiracies become the focal point of chapter 11. She seeks to wipe out the seed of David. And then in chapter 12, we see God's faithfulness through Joash and the whole revival that takes place there. And then in chapter 13, we come back to Elisha and the death of Elisha. So there's some, a lot of interesting events and people and circumstances that go on in these uh, 18, 18 to 19 chapters that cover a lot, the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. But in order to get a perspective on this, I want to go back and look at two passages uh, from the law back in Deuteronomy. So first of all, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. To understand the role of the prophet, we have to understand what is laid down in that legal contract of the Mosaic law. And in Deuteronomy chapter, chapters 28 and 29, Moses rehearses the blessings God has promised Israel if they're obedient and the cursings or the judgment that God is going to bring upon them if they are disobedient. Chapter 30 describes their renewal of the covenant with God. This is the uh, conquest generation, different from their parents' generation, the Exodus generation. 
And so they renew this contract. He has reviewed for them what the consequences are for obedience and the consequences are for disobedience. And then there's the covenant renewal ceremony in chapter 29. And then in chapter 30, he begins to uh, conclude uh, this whole sermon because that's actually what Deuteronomy is, is a is Moses' final parting message to the nation. The first uh, ten verses of chapter 30, he reminds them again, summarizes what will take place if they're obedient. Verse 1, Now it shall come to pass, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. So in chapter 30, there's a recognition that at some point in the future, they will have been so disobedient that God will have scattered them among all of the nations. And in verses 1 through 10, Moses emphasizes that God is going to be faithful to the law and he will bring them back from being scattered among the nations. And then in uh, verse 11, verses 11 down to uh, 14, he puts the focus on the word. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it, nor is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. The point that he is making is the truth that you need isn't far off. It's right here. You've been given it. You have all that you need right here. It's been revealed. It's sufficient. You don't need to look somewhere else. You don't need to expect someone to come and give you more. You have it. It's very near you, verse 14, in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. And then the final challenge in verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. The issue is volition. In human history, he makes that point so clear here. As he addresses them, he says, The issue for you is on the one hand, life. On the other hand, death. On the one hand, good. And on the other hand, evil. So he sets up these uh, contrasts between life and death, good and evil. Good is on the side of life. Evil is on the side of death. Now, what do we see as we've gone through these chapters and 1 Kings 14, 15, 16, that Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord with idolatry. Where does evil lead? It leads to death. It leads to destruction. What happens in the reigns of Jeroboam and uh, his sons in the northern kingdom, one after the other? There's uh, His son is killed within a year, assassinated. Another dynasty comes in, uh, Baasha. Uh, Baasha has been disciplined by the Lord. His son lasts about a year, and then he's assassinated, and then he's replaced. There's a civil war in the north between Tibni and uh, Zimri. Then Zimri, after uh, uh, a period of time, uh, Zimri is taken out, becomes king and taken out, and then uh, Omri comes to the throne. And Omri has a son, Ahab. So it's just chaos, economic chaos, political chaos, instability. It is the working out of the curses of Deuteronomy chapters 28 uh, 28 and 29. 
So Moses says, I said before you today, life and death, life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments. Now, those three terms, commandments, statutes, and judgments, refer to uh, all the different mandates in the Mosaic Law and just summarizes that, and that's standard uh, legal terminology used within the Mosaic uh, Covenant. But the key issue is to love the Lord your God, and to walk in his way. So it moves from loving the Lord to obedience. It's not just saying, oh, I love the Lord, but there's this uh, intimate relationship, an integral relationship between loving God and obeying him. Jesus says the same thing in the upper room discourse to the disciples. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John says the same thing again in 1 John. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do you know you love God? Not by having some rosy glow or some warm feeling or standing up in church and swaying back and forth and letting the the music just lift you to some higher plane. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with learning the Word and obeying the Word. And obeying the Word isn't legalism. Somehow along the way, you get people who think that that if you say you have to do what the Bible says to do, it's legalism. After all, we can just confess our sins. We don't have to worry about it. But the Bible says that the confession isn't a license to sin. It is a tool to recover fellowship so we can keep going forward. But the issue is obedience, and that's one of the major themes that John has in 1 John, is to keep pressing forward. When we slip and stumble, we have recovery, but we're to keep going forward, and obedience is the barometer to measure our love for God. And that's the same message you have all the way back in the Old Testament. God doesn't change at all. Some of the details change, the ritual changes, some of the other aspects related to each dispensation and God's people change, but the basic, fundamental, spiritual life principles don't change. So Moses then says in verse 17, but if your heart turns away, So on the one hand, you're commanded to love the Lord, but if your heart turns away so that you do not hear, and hearing means doing, James says, and doing means applying the word. It's the same idea. If you don't hear, i.e., if you're not walking in his way, if you reject doctrine and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve him. So what's the contrast? On the one hand, it's life. On the other hand, it's death. On the one hand, it's good. On the other hand, it's evil. On the one hand, it's Yahweh, loving Yahweh. And on the other hand, it's turning to other gods. Those are the only options anybody has ever had in history. It's one or the other. There's no neutral ground. There's no place in the middle where you can just sort of sit in the stands and watch. It's that every decision we make in life ultimately comes back to choosing one or the other. And we have to be consistent. So he says, if you turn away and worship other gods, this is what sets the pattern of Israel's history from this point in history, which is about 1404, 1405 B.C., from that point all the way to... uh, their rejection of Christ, uh, 
And it's the same choice that believers have. It is either a choice for life, which means focusing solely and exclusively on God and making doctrine the highest priority in your life, or it's focusing on your own gods, whatever they are, whether you're going to manufacture them externally out of wood or stone or metal, or whether you're going to manufacture them out of the details of life in your own head and making idols out of uh, financial success, prosperity, friends, social life, uh, whatever it may be. You have all the details of life, and one or the other or many of them become elevated to the status of deity once we take God out of the, uh, out of the center focus of our thinking. So Moses says, if your heart turns away so that you don't hear and you're drawn away, worship by the gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. In other words, you won't live long. There will be diseases. There will be uh, military disasters. There will be droughts. There will be all of these other things, the uh, uh, increase of wild animals, predatory animals, all these things that have been outlined in Leviticus 26 will come to pass. And so then in verse 19, he calls upon heaven and earth as witnesses today. Now, this isn't calling upon an impersonal heaven, you know, just the stars in the heaven. And he's not calling upon just dirt, the ground, the earth, to witness because these are, these are not sentient beings. How can uh, just raw dirt witness anything? How can a, a star be a witness to anything? What he's talking about is the domains. He's using a figure of speech. And remember, according to the Mosaic Law, everything has to be confirmed by two witnesses. And so we have one witness are those sentient beings, those intelligent beings that live and operate, whose abode is the heavens. That's the angels. And then you have another group of sentient beings of intelligent, rational, volitional creatures on the earth, and that's mankind. These make up the two basic witness groups that are involved in the angelic conflict. And so when Moses says, I call upon heaven and earth as witnesses, he is laying out the law. He's swearing them to obedience to the law, and there have to be two witnesses, and the two witnesses are the human race on the one hand and angelic creatures, including both fallen and elect angels who are witnessing everything in human history, on the other hand. So as I call upon heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, Blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. That's the command. Choose life. He's not afraid. He says, well, why don't you make a choice? You know, it's up to you. He tells them what the choice should be. He's not going to just sort of be uh, wimpy about it and just say, well, you know, you need to go evaluate the evidence and you need to make your own decision. And uh, whatever you decide to do, that's going to be one. Every now and then I hear about parents who raise their children and say, well, I don't want to force religion down them. I don't want to tell them what to believe. And I just want to expose them to everything. And then when they're old enough, uh, they will know what to do. Well, that's, that's just that's silly. And that means they get a big F as parents because the role of the parents is to inculcate truth into their children and to teach it to them from the very beginning when they're 
uh, just in diapers. Moses has this same idea. Choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God and that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them. Now, what's that? That's the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is the basis for the Mosaic covenant. Everything is structured within these uh, legal contracts. So there's this reestablishment, renewal of the uh, Mosaic covenant, and God's promise to them that if they will obey, then God's going to keep them in the land. If they disobey, they're out of the land. Now, turn over to the uh, next book, which is Joshua, and turn to the last chapter of Joshua, which is Joshua chapter 24. Now, this is Joshua addressing the same generation. This is about ten years later, maybe a little, little more, maybe a little less, but it is after the conquest. Moses addressed the conquest generation just prior to the conquest. Joshua is addressing them after they have uh, defeated most of the major uh, cities, major kings, major forces of the Canaanites in the land, and he gathers them together at Shechem. Once again, Shechem is in the hill country of Ephraim. Shechem is a place that has a significant presence in the land going all the way back to the time of Abraham. And he gathers them together at Shechem, and there they're going to have another covenant renewal ceremony. Isn't that interesting? This generation just did this ten years ago, and uh, I always remember when when I was young, we'd sort of... uh, uh, laugh at the Baptist because they would always have people come forward and dedicate their life, and then the next week they'd come up and rededicate, and then the next week they'd re-rededicate. How many times can you dedicate your life? But the reality is that we often fail in our spiritual life, and we have to come to a position where, where we question ourselves and say, okay, am I really committed to what I said I was committed to? And I've just completely blown it. I'm off track. I've gotten away from the Lord. I've gotten away from the Word. I need to go back and re-examine what that basic relationship is with God and decide if I'm still going to uh, stick with the original uh, decision to follow the Lord. I'm trying to stay away from commitment terminology because we don't want to get that confused with faith in Christ. It's a decision for the believer after salvation. What are you going to do with all the blessings that God gives you with salvation? Are you just going to let it lie fallow, or are you going to develop it through a study of the Word and walking walking by the Holy Spirit? Now, of course, this is an Old Testament context, and they're not walking by not not going to be able to walk by the Spirit because there's no indwelling or filling of the Holy Spirit. But the issue is the same in relation to their faithfulness and their loyalty uh, to the Lord. And so Joshua is going to begin to remind them. He starts off in verse 2, reminding them of their heritage, the legacy left to them from uh, uh, Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, that they had lived on the other side of the river, that is uh, the Euphrates. They lived over there in what is now uh, southern Iraq. And they came out of a context of paganism where they served 
uh, other other gods. Then he, there's a reminder of how God brought Abraham to the land, his promise to the land, then eventually going down to Egypt and how God brought them out of Egypt and how he delivered them. And as he continues to rehearse uh, through this, he comes down to, to uh, his, his last words to the, to the nation, starting in verse 14. He says, Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river, those would be the Babylonian deities, and in Egypt, serve the Lord. Notice he, he's not going to back off either. He's not giving them some little nice little option to uh, uh, go make up your own mind. Uh, we don't want to pressure you. We don't want to put you in any kind of... Uh, uh, negative situation. We just want you to think it through and come up with your own decision. God's not that way either. He says, you can choose death, but you can choose against me, but that's the path of death, and these are going to be the negative consequences. You can't live in a not, there's not a neutral creation. You're either for God or against him. So Moses is making this very clear. Verse 15, it says, If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So he's making the point that they need to make a decision between God and are the gods. That's the same decision that goes all the way down through history. Even though we may not have a problem with our uh, society going down to various uh, uh, temples of where they're, they're worshiping other gods, there certainly are groups that do that. And uh, the primary problem is uh, atheism, secular atheism, secular humanism, but they're, the gods that they're worshiping are just uh, the abstract idols of the mind. And Joshua makes it very clear that there has to be this choice between God and between all the other false systems, between divine viewpoint and the scriptures and all of the other systems of thought. There's only two options here. There can be lots of variations of human viewpoint, but there's only divine viewpoint and human viewpoint. And other people respond and they say, as people do in circumstances like this, well, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. We recognize God delivered us. He brought us out of Egypt. He gave us victory, drove out the Amorites and the Canaanites and gave us this land. And then Joshua concludes in verse 19, he says to the people, you cannot serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he's done you good. Now, he's not talking about soteriological forgiveness here. He's talking about the fact that eventually the people will reach a point where God will execute judgment and discipline upon them as he has promised in the law. In the law. So the people against uh, uh, say that they're, they're going to serve the Lord and they protest, but he says... Your witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they cry out that they are witnesses. And he says, therefore, put away the foreign gods among you 
Incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. Well, the point that we see in both of these sections is that the central issue that's going to face Israel is going to be whether or not they are going to be consistently obedient to the word and that they are going to make the worship of God, which means learning the law and applying the law, walking consistently in obedience to the law, their focal point as individuals and as a nation. And the result of that is going to be life. The result of that is going to be good. And the result of that is going to be blessing. But it only comes when you do what God says to do. On the other hand, their choice is to serve other gods, whether they're idols of the mind, whether they're physical idols, whether it's just worshiping your own uh, desires, whatever it may be, the path there always leads to death and destruction and judgment. Now, both of these passages, Deuteronomy 30 and Joshua 24, are set within the context of a legal ceremony where there's this covenant renewal. So the nation again and again and again has renewed, reaffirmed this covenant with God and so that is well established that this is the, the, the they're legally, they are legally bound to, to obey God. Now what happens when they start disobeying God? Well, God is going to send someone who it will prosecute the people in a legal sense, like a, like an attorney general or a defense attorney, and will bring to their consciousness an awareness of how they have violated God, God's word, how they violated the contract, how, where they have broken the contract, and just exactly what God said the penalty would be. It's all very legal. It's all set within this courtroom situation. So we find ourselves in First Kings with the southern king, I mean the northern kingdom now, having deteriorated to a point where not only have they uh, been following for at least 50 years the idolatry of the, introduced by Jeroboam with the two golden calves, the one at Bethel, the other one further north at Dan. But Ahab is taking them into an even worse situation, and Ahab is going to introduce Baalism. And he does that through his marriage. And Omri, his father, uh, probably worked a, a deal with the king of the uh, Phoenicians to marry his daughter to his son in order to seal a treaty between the two groups. And the trouble is that the king, in, and as it was typical in many of these uh, ancient Near Eastern cultures, the king is not only a political head, but the king is also the religious head. And the uh, king of Tyre was Ethobaal, it, it, and he was the high priest of Baal worship. And Baal worship is basically centered around uh, fertility. And there's this uh, uh, integral relationship between the king and the religion. Because the king is the one who is supposed to protect the people and to provide for the people. And the king is the one who is supposed to provide for their prosperity. Things aren't any different today. As soon as we start seeing economic collapse on the horizon 
and we start hearing about company, large uh, companies going belly up, what do we what do we do? We want the president to solve the problem. We want the government to start solving the problem, thinking that the government is the solution. And that's exactly the way they were in the ancient world, that somehow the, the, the head of state has power over the forces in creation. And so there is this subtle attempt to deify the political process. It wasn't so subtle in the ancient world. And, for example, in Egypt, the uh, king was God. In the Babylonian religions, he was a uh, close representation if not an incarnation of the gods. And then in the Syrophoenician religion, he was the high priest of the gods. And so you have this this religious system that is based essentially on a very crude concept of prosperity. It is in an agricultural environment, prosperity is tied to uh, the land to fertility to crop production in the arid climate of the Middle East. It's tied to water and to rain and to the cycles of the seasons. And if this gets interrupted, then uh, there can be immediate, uh, immediate problems when the result can be drought or famine and that can lead and just domino uh, to economic recession, depression, as we would put it today. And that's the kind of situation that is going to face the northern kingdom as a result of God sending Elijah uh, to Ahab. So turn back with me to First Kings chapter 17 as Elijah is coming upon the scene. Now, we won't get very far into this. We need to look at a few things at the end of the previous chapter. But before we do that, I want to uh, take a moment to reflect upon a passage that we have in the New Testament related to, uh, related to Elijah. Elijah is one of the three most revered men in the Old Testament. There's Abraham, there's Moses, and there's Elijah. He is... Uh, expected and prophesied to come as the predecessor to the Messiah. Elijah will come and he will uh, be an announcer to the Messiah. John the Baptist was thought to be Elijah. And it's stated in the Gospels that if the people had accepted him, then John would have been Elijah. So there was this expectation, uh, biblical, biblically correct expectation, that Elijah would return as a uh, to precede the coming of the Messiah at Passover. When the Jews celebrate Passover and they set the table, there is one place setting that is left empty, and that is for Elijah if he shows up. And at the end of the Passover meal, usually a child will go to the door of the house, open the door, and look outside to see if Elijah's coming. And if Elijah is not coming, then they will uh, close the ceremony. Elijah is also thought to be one of the two prophets who will appear in the tribulation. And usually it's thought to be Moses and Elijah. Some people think maybe Enoch and Elijah. But definitely Elijah would be one of those two prophets that appear who will challenge the power of the Antichrist and they will display many miracles in, um, in establishing their 
uh, their credentials during the tribulation period before they are finally uh, martyred and killed by the Antichrist, and then they're in the grave for three days, and then they're raised from the dead and ascend to heaven. So Elijah has a prominent place in the New Testament. And we need to think about the question, why is Elijah so special? What is so significant about Elijah? And then we come to a passage like James 5.17, where we read, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And then the illustration James is using there is in relation to his prayer. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. But the point that we ought to focus on is this that first phrase, that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. That means that there wasn't anything special about Elijah in terms of uh, that he didn't have quite the sin nature that you have or I have. He's just like us. There, he, the only thing that made him different was the doctrine he had in his, in his soul and volition. And we have more in terms of our own spiritual life and the indwelling and filling of the Holy Spirit than Elijah ever had. Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, but he will be least in the kingdom compared to church-age believers. Church-age believers have more. We've been given more. We have the Word of God. We are in Christ. All of the blessings that we've been given. We've been blessed with every every blessing in the heavenlies. And yet we act like we are uh, some impoverished uh, stepchild that's still uh, sweeping up like a Cinderella or something rather than uh, utilizing the Word of God in the way that we should. And that's because of the same problem they had in the Old Testament. We're not really learning the word. So Elijah uh, is a source of tremendous lessons for us in terms of the spiritual life, in terms of confronting a pagan culture surrounding us, and also in terms of failure, because Elijah is going to fail in some, some big ways. And yet God's grace is great enough to help us and to strengthen us not only in success, but also in in our failure. So we'll come back next time and we will begin to look a little more detail at the context of Elijah. We've got the framework here from the scripture. We need to look at the historical context of Elijah. Need to focus a little more on the worship of Baal and the Asherah, uh, Ahab, the marriage to Jezebel, and the culture as it's seen at the end of chapter uh, chapter 16 in First Kings, and then we will uh, begin chapter 17. Let's uh, close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and realize that throughout history the principle has been the same, that those who are believers need to learn to trust you. Simple operation of faith rest drill to understand your word, to believe it, to implement it, and to apply it to our lives. Father, we pray that we will be challenged by our study of Elijah to do just that in our own thinking and our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.